0: Kiko and the lavender moon not dancing, making faces at a big black cat. And then he flies up to the wall, stands on one foot, doesn't even fall. Dance and dance, still dance until he goes off to sleep. His breath, it's always there, scares him to death. Kiko and the lavender moon, not dreaming about green shoes, haircuts, and cake. And then he wishes the world away, and then he kneels as if to pray. He dreams and dreams, Kiko and the lavender moon.
1: still here uh, in the house um i was able to read some of your cartel land posts but i actually haven't read all of them yet so um so yeah i look forward to, to reading the rest of those i read read some um and so maybe i'll bring it up when we talk uh on the next podcast here since i didn't have a chance to look at more of them today Um, In any case, uh, Joel doesn't know what we're doing, so I was going to give him a little bit of uh, a sort of update on what this class is about. So today's class had three readings. The first one was a New York Times article. That's too many. (laughs) Well, one was just a New York Times article. It was very short, and the other two were also reasonably short. But it was perhaps too many, especially in the time of covid um but in any case you
2: start you get a new york times article and the next thing you know you're reading about covid and then it's like you're done for the day (laughs) it's just taking out just give it up
1: it was a pdf they didn't have to go to the yeah don't don't even navigate
2: to to newyorktimes.com um Mm
1: -hmm. they will have an assignment like that in in maybe next week where they actually are going to look at covid in latin america um Uplifting it's topic. Uplifting topic, yeah. Anyway. um. But... <laughs> maybe, maybe
2: you should give someone an opt-out, like a <laughs> mental health opt-out of that assignment.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, we're struggling over here as we enter month two of, of isolation. Everybody's everybody's pooped, pooped from staying home. Um, yeah, anyway... But we are talking about the migrant caravan today, not about COVID. Um, a big one
2: from a couple of years ago? Yeah. So
1: in 2018, uh, you probably remember there was a big sort of political firestorm over this migrant caravan that was coming in from Honduras. And so the New York Times article- We sent the
2: army down to the border, right? I believe Didn't that we- did we like shoot tear gas <laughs> at Hondurans who were-
3: We might have. Right? I mean, we, I think that, we I think We might have done
1: that. We probably did. Um, in any case, uh, I will read a little bit of background that came out of this New York Times article that I assigned, um, which is that a caravan of migrants, nearly all of them Honduran, uh, at this point in 2018 was making its way north through Guatemala toward Mexico and the United States. And it was the, at the time, the latest and certainly the largest iteration of a phenomenon that has occurred from time to time, which is that big groups of Central Americans joined together to face the challenges of migration. Uh, their numbers providing security against the criminals that stalk their route, which we will get to sort of think about in a little more depth as we look at some of these do we, articles. Do
2: we get to talk about how these get organized and who organizes them or anything like that? Is that because that's what I've always wondered.
1: You know, I don't really actually know um, the full answer to that question, though, what I do know um, about this one is that because it ended up getting so much press once it started, so they often okay. start smaller and then people okay. kind of glom on so that you have some of it, which is, I think, you know, fueled by media attention. Is and that then people taking I the see. opportunity to sort of join a group. Um, okay. And I think to call it a single caravan is both true and not true. Okay. Um. So, like, parts of the group would be making the trip and some would, like, Crossed into Guatemala, and others were still in Honduras, and right. so like it. I think sounds a bit more coherent than okay. the thing actually is. Okay, um, though I haven't actually read scholarship about. I mean, presumably there are some community leaders that would be doing something in, yeah. in these. I just uh, wonder. I just wonder these things. Yeah, that'd be interesting like to think about for social movements. Yeah, actually. for
2: sure. And like, what the role of some of these? What are the role of certain political elites in sure. driving this, and what's their angle? And I right. mean, because these become international news, I assume
1: the Honduran president at the time was not into the caravan.
2: Now, which Honduran president is that? That's the post-Hillary coup.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, we're definitely way post-Hillary coup. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Zelaya
2: w- was that was that was the president that there was the coup against. Yeah, Salaya, and then someone after who was,
1: was I can't remember. Maybe one of the quotes that I have written down. The president at the time. And Sorry,
2: I don't mean to derail. I was just trying mm. to think about that, about that angle of yeah. I don't political think elites and what political elites stand to gain from this. I don't think this was a national like
1: political. It Could have been local political right. elites, but not national.
2: Local power um. brokers.
1: Anyway, read a quote. There's a couple quotes from the New okay, York Times I'll article. Here.
2: I'll start here with the card labeled number one. Mr. This is from the New York Times article. Mr. Trump made the fight against illegal immigration, a central plank in his presidential platform. True enough. During his presidential campaign, Mr. Trump's fierce attacks against immigrants were wildly successful in firing up his conservative base. And you're asking me not to editorialize this. (laughs) All right. All right. All right. All right. (laughs) And with midterm elections only weeks away he has renewed these attacks warning of criminals pouring over the border to threaten american citizens and suggesting that undocumented immigrants will cause economic dislocation and job loss i mean i don't know what else to say other than i can't say anything <laughs> i can't say anything i am i'm rendered speechless by by I mean, con- confronting the 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 way that that is wrapped in some kind of like like I don't know. I'm I'm speechless.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that one of the reasons that I think that this is an interesting. I think it's an interesting thing to talk about. I mean, apart from the racism right, which is very important. And we've talked about that sort of u.s racism towards latin americans as a right. historical phenomenon right. going back it's taken a yes. whole lot of different forms right yes. i mean we talked about it in all kinds of different ways a hundred you know hundred years ago it was like a you know yes right this is a sort of modern incarnation right now it's in a yes. tweet instead of in you know whatever <laughs> a letter to you know whoever
2: like roots yeah. letters exactly right? right
1: um so you know they read about that aloha root in uh in the schultz book um but the other thing that this brings up i think um and as we think a little bit about the role of immigrants in the united states which i think we will a little bit for friday um is it doesn't really matter what is or is not good policy here in the sense that this is being used as a political kind of wedge issue, right? And so it's, again, that we see this kind of foreign policy being determined by what is sort of selling politically... expedient. Exactly. Um, so whatever else is happening in, you know, relations, economic relations or whatnot, and whether or not this is actual rational policymaking from a whole variety of perspectives, right, becomes completely overwhelmed by the political kind of utility of these kind of arguments. So I think that that was like one of the reasons okay. I pulled that quote out of okay. this this article was because we've seen both the kind of racist appeals and also the use of the way in which domestic electoral concerns have like shifted kind of US policy towards the region. Um, and I think we see that, again, you know, as it comes around in its different form, but looks actually remarkably similar to things that we've seen historically when we opened. Right. You know, we're sort of bringing this right. back to the opening right. of the course. Right. Uh, I think in a, in a number of ways.
2: Right. 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 I'm just going to keep moving. Do it. I think keep that going. this one, I see Mr. Trump again at the start of this, so I'm <laughs> yeah. not sure that there's going to be any any change in my capacity to respond. Uh, mr trump's initial salvos in his response to the caravan this week were directed at the honduran government but were quickly expanded to include el salvador and guatemala i can't believe that he can even pronounce those um sorry sorry. he threatened all three countries with a suspension of foreign aid should they allow their citizens to continue traveling toward the united states yeah i mean obviously right i guess that this just reiterates your point that like this is detached from any kind of rationality, and this is pure politicking, right? Like the the idea that that these governments could control or allow their citizens to like, I mean, it's just right. Even someone like Trump is knows enough to realize that like he's not proposing anything real, right? He's just making electoral hay, like well, he's just saying things to make people
1: that. And I think again, like as we bring it back towards some of the earlier
2: express racist views.
1: No, I was going to say sort of using this kind of like big bludgeon, right? Like this sort of to hit Latin America with, right? Sort of these nice big threats to sort of make Latin America bend to the will of the United States and do the United States bidding when it is convenient.
2: So um, do they? Do they well, respond? To so what's
1: interesting, and actually I think really quite interesting, is that um, the president of Guatemala, who's this guy Jimmy Morales at the time, uh, who I th- think is actually, I don't know if he's still in... I've forgotten now. I've like I'm like in a time warp of what's actually happening. Uh, in any case, he was a he was a trip of a president. If I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure he's a comedian turned president.
2: Literally a comedian, not a podcaster. <laughs> literally a president. comedian.
1: Um, when any, do you think
2: we'll get the first podcaster turned president?
1: It's going to be us. We're a couple generations I'm coming, right? We're a couple generations coming for the White House. Right. I would never be elected. Um, in any case. So Jimmy Morales of Guatemala is basically like whatever, just dismisses Trump's threats. Okay. Like he doesn't okay. like, it's kind of like yeah, whatever. Um but meanwhile, Mexico, who in a certain regard is has this,
2: Is this when Fox gets really excited? No.
1: Uh I mean there's a ma- a bunch of amazing uh Fox yeah videos against Trump. He I think really got going at the border wall.
2: Right, okay, right.
1: Um so I guess that would have been prior
2: that was before that was during the election prior right to this. after i don't
1: remember did i ever i don't think i've shown you guys this but you maybe gotta, they'll you,
2: you look them up google them google i'll them. try they're hard box. to
1: find now i think i actually no, yeah really? they're like actually very hard he he made about 3 of them um, very anti-Trump, amazing, they were amazing, amazingly well, and like amazingly brazen. And they're not. We're never going to build
2: that fucking wall. Yeah. <laughs> he Whoa. Like he it's, also it's, he
1: insults him, talks about like b- takes out a baby pic of Trump and is like, "This is the you know,
2: former like president. vice president, former former vice president of like Coca Cola." Right?
1: I talk to them about this. It's I feel like I did. Because One of the most amazing he things was I've like, seen. Maybe I didn't. Because I was trying to put it into context that um I think I didn't show it to them yet, but you know, he was really great friends with George W. Bush. Fox was. So it's not that he Like I mean, yeah. this is like a, a lover of A Conservative. Yeah, lover he, he was a conservative. Markets. And he and like George Bush had this kind of cowboy like rancher thing going. They were like buddies. Like, I mean it was like yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway. Um
2: Vaqueros. But
1: Mexico at this point, actually, bends to
2: Mexico bends.
1: Yeah, so Peña Nieto, Mexico. I think it, this still would have been Peña Nieto, right? Would have still been. It's like because
2: right, Amlo's in two thousand eighteen is elected in two thousand eighteen. So this is yeah, right?
1: this is like right at that kind of transitional moment. I don't know who's actually in. It's the a third. fragile
2: moment in Mexico,
1: right? But I Mexico mean, is, at, and I mean, you'll see even under Amlo, who's a populist and has a lot of reasons to sort of push against the U.S. Though I'm not sure what's about to happen in this COVID moment. I think this is up for grabs a little bit. Um AMLO has been played ball to a high extent with the Trump administration, as we'll hear in some of the actual professional, sorry, professional podcasts, as I like hit the microphone into my face, Um that you'll hear in next week, I think, um... So, but it's kind of interesting, right? Mexico is more powerful. We've talked a little bit about the U.S. being more deferent to Mexico than some of the Central American or smaller Caribbean island countries, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and here you see that, that Mexico is the one that sort of cows. uh As opposed to Guatemala, who's much more like, what are you going to do? More, what more you to lose, do?
2: though, right, in Mexico, right? That relationship yeah. is more significant yeah. to Mexico, right? Probably. I don't know.
1: Probably. I mean, it's like hard to tease out who wins more significant i mean mexico and the u.s have far more intertwined economies right right Right. i don't know where we are at this point in renegotiating nafta i didn't pull up like i would have to think about that timeline but let me tell you one thing before you read this next one because i think that this is bringing us to a new reading is that correct you're getting to the paris reading yes so um so this Migrant Caravan is a little bit of a frame to start thinking a little more about the internal push politics of sort of what it is that is sort of pushing some of these Central American migrants to get here. So the next okay. two pieces that the students read were about gangs okay, um, in the region. Gangs. And gangs are a really major problem in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras in particular, right. Um, right. where gang activity is dominated by principally by two gangs. One is called the Mara Salvatrucha, or the MS-13, and the other is called um, Barrio 18. Um, and these are the most well-organized and violent gangs in the region. So in spite All of right. the fact that there are larger countries also with gangs, these are the two um, principal violence sort of generators in the region. Okay. Um, And the conflicts, their sort of general activities, their initiation activities, as well as the conflicts between them um, and amongst, in some cases, intra kind of clique rivalries uh, are driving the extraordinarily grim homicide statistics uh, in in those three countries, which are called the Northern Triangle. Um, The homicide rate in all three hovers around 50 people per 100,000. Um, okay. Give us some context. So the context is that you want to guess it for the U.S. What the homicide rate is. Uh
2: let's see.
1: So it's a, always up per hundred k.
2: Per hundred thousand, five.
1: Correct. So the U.S.'s homicide rate is five point five, I get it right? Like you literally, did, literally on the It's Five point 5. 5. five. So 5. yes, okay. I mean basically, right? So it's it's actually basically ten times as much homicide in these in gotcha. these countries. Got gotcha. you. So very very. Uh, plagued by by violence um,
2: got you here. got you yeah that sounds pretty pretty tough
1: so that's pretty what as tough. we're sort of thinking more about what the sort of domestic how many and many homicides a year we
2: have in Syracuse I bet we have like under I bet a, I bet a normal year I bet we have under 20 probably in, a, in the city itself know. a city of mm-hmm. 150,000 in the city limits, city police department covers a city of 150. I bet we have, on an average year, 20 or so. Maybe. Right.
1: Yeah. I don't know. We'd have to look at that So we're up, still but talking like, like
2: that would be like as if there were double the number of it's murders. It's a pretty
1: extraordinary yeah. number. Yeah. Um, and they're right. also often gruesome.
2: Right. 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 I guess it just is like when you hear 50 per 100,000 people. That 100,000 people is still relatively – like it's too large to imagine, but I'm just – so I'm trying to imagine it in context. Yes, yes. All right. Gangs – this is from the page 224 of the Paris reading. Gangs are the heirs of urban juvenile groups that developed in the socioeconomic conditions of urban areas and were transformed by those conditions and by political decisions from juvenile groups engaged in petty crimes to transnational criminal networks involved in drug trafficking, money laundering, and serial murders.
1: Yep. Okay. I mean, part of this is just a little bit about the context of poverty. Right. And right. a lot What's of... What's part of it with
2: political decisions?
1: I, I don't know what that... It I says. Yeah,
2: they were transformed by those conditions and by political decisions.
1: That may be about... I can't remember exactly where... Like, fuller context of where i pulled that quote from but um one of the responses that the central american states have engaged in is this increasingly repressive policies okay. right. um and it's those increasingly repressive policies combined with the drug trade that have actually pushed these gangs to become far more organized um
2: and more transnationally right so the transnational to tap, yeah we we'll need tap larger like they're just looking to bring in more money, right? And you can't. Uh, well, or...
1: it's more that the drug, the DTOs, the drug trafficking organizations sort of found Ooh. them useful. Found um, the criminal
2: gangs useful. Yeah. The so juvenile like groups.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. So that you have these kind of like they actually have different words in Spanish to differentiate between what they will call like a youth gang that's not what and a like a gang. A gang. <laughs> it's like, but anyway, there's this distinction in Central America between pandillas, which pandillas, tend to be these okay. more like youth oriented roving
2: like, bands of hoodlums.
1: Yeah, kind of, but that aren't necessarily particularly violent, maybe some petty crimes. And then the maras, which are the like maras? actual, yeah, that are sort of the actual uh, gangs that are far more violent, far more uh, linked with the larger narco-trafficking networks. Okay. And so that there was a bit of a transition but from... But you her- don't
2: want to be either, right? Like respectable society.
1: No. I mean, I think that... I right. mean, this sort of think about the Pandillas as like, you're in a very poor neighborhood okay. in a big, poor city, right? It's okay. in Salvador, you know, Pagosigalpa, right. Right? right? And... You, the police are poorly trained and corrupt, and you know, yeah. where you then form, you know, kind of street Urapandia. culture, kind right. of yeah. Um, so that these have existed and continue to exist in some parts of the region that aren't nearly as violent or associated with this kind of narco trafficking, but sort of a whole confluence of things made these three countries, um, have a sort of shift from that kind of more loose you know, right. right, In these
2: organizations, this is doing more... I mean, I'm, I know you talk about this sometimes, but as I'm starting to think about this, it's almost like where, where state penetration is so low and state capacity is so low, it's not only that the communities are ripe for being... In, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not incorporated, but being... It's not only that they are are like ripe for the kind of organization that a drug trafficking organization might want, but that that I the longevity I'll... of those drug trafficking organizations means that in a sense they're almost forming they're almost forming society like where the state cannot but but the consequence of that is like I guess I wonder i mean. If society gets organized by drug gangs and by transnational drug trafficking organizations, like, how – like, the state, it seems like, would have to undo certain things and then redo – like, it would require double the capacity. The state would have to work twice as hard.
1: I mean, I would say a couple of things. One is that, I mean, the drug traffic, the transnational drug trafficking organizations take advantage of areas where there's weak state capacity. Um, and particularly, um, some scholarship shows weak state capacity in the policing and uh, judiciary. Though I would argue there's probably more things going on there, but certainly that we see in some of these countries that are equally poor, like Nicaragua, but have had a more professional and less, far less corrupt police force and more competent mm-hmm. judiciary that you have actually not seen. They still have the kind of pandillas, but they have not linked up with. Um, to the same extent with narco trafficking, and it uh-huh. has not produced the same levels of violence, there's other things that okay. are happening a little in the Nicaragua story, but those I think are big ones uh-huh. right that you had uh-huh. a bit more competent state in some areas. People had very high satisfaction with the police there wasn't this okay. kind of antagonistic relationship between police and society um and so then you got that was like a less use it was it was like a more challenging place for a kind of home base for narco trafficking, and so, you know, mm-hmm. it's okay. it's not that it's absent from Nicaragua, but it's 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 integrated into the country in a very different way that has not produced the same violence. Even though Nicaragua right. was one of the poorest countries in the region, interesting, interesting. Um, so that that we see that the like weak state capacity is actually part of, I think the the growing of that gang culture. The other thing Nicaragua did that was very different is in in. Contrast to these, what they call dura policies, which are like hardline, we would say, I think, right. hardline policies. Right. Um, Nicaragua really saw gangs, partly, like, they were looking at them as these pandillas. They saw them as, like, problems of social life, right? That, like, right. young men didn't have enough to do. They didn't have jobs. So they are left-wing and, government. And so, right along well, n- no, what's fascinating you know? is that the, I mean, this gets into all this domestic stuff. Um, but, okay, so... As it got mentioned in one of these articles, I forget which one, but I think the Paris article, but Nicaragua also had a civil war. So in this Northern Triangle, two out of the three countries have civil wars. Um, El Salvador, Guatemala, it was really actually a genocide, calling it a civil war is really a misnomer. Um, El Salvador was truly a civil war. Mm -hmm. Um, But Honduras doesn't, right? So... The mm-hmm. violence can't be explained fully by that. And then on top of that, Nicaragua also has a civil war. Right. Um, but interestingly in Nicaragua, the rebels win. Right. Um but then right. the rebels actually cede power. The revolutionary party that comes in cedes mm-hmm. power in democratic elections after two cycles of elections. Mm-hmm. Um and that's actually part of why the police is so professionalized. I see. Um, is that you had a revolutionary police force that then had to function in a democratic context right and the way they saw how to save themselves was by professionalizing um and they also had all these kind of revolutionary ideals about like society and yeah. how you fix yeah. society there yeah. was a lot of top brass and the police that were old revolutionary fighters um so yeah Latin it's American a really marxists it's yeah right yeah like yeah
2: post post fidel kinds of right mm-hmm. i mean like this, yeah. this this is the tradition it comes out of right correct yeah. correct yeah
1: yeah, so, you know, it was, it's an interesting story. is sort of the, the very different approach and the way in which it had success, even though it's a very poor mm-hmm. state. And in some ways, I think, of equally low capacity, though right. not in every way, right? right? So it's sort of an interesting right. uh, example in that regard.
2: Interesting. Interesting. Uh, here's from 226, so the same Paris reading. One of the major trends observed across the region is the declining age of entry into youth. This is dark. Declining age of entry into youth gangs. Another trend is the expansion of gang activity to rural areas. Ooh. Yeah. God. Gangs are no longer restricted to big cities, but increasingly emerge and operate in small towns and villages. My God, sir. Yeah. That's dark.
1: It's dark. That's dark. And I think that, again, if we bring this back, and the the next reading that I think you're about to start quoting for is is even darker because it's more of a journalistic portrait. So Guillermo Prieto who occasionally also says kind of weirdly...
2: She's uh, just privileged. She's just <laughs> privileged, yeah. right? I mean, she says things that are, that expose her yeah, yeah. blind spots.
1: Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes they're a little yeah Beautiful little writer. Yeah. Beautiful writer. Yeah. But, you know, it's like there's a line here about one of the gang members, like gang leaders that's in prison talks about his Chinese eyes, and you're just like... Oh, Chinese God, eyes, I'm not, really? Serious. Oh. She's sometimes really bad, like occasionally that's like... Yeah.
2: Anyway, but yeah she's very yikes okay anyway i'll watch it's out for like that.
1: high cheekbones i didn't put that in one of the quotes it's <sighs> yeah, but yikes. anyway guys if you noticed it i i generally really like her writing for how descriptive it is and how i think she really paints nice pictures and then i often have to be like oh sorry about the sort of so
2: weird though all that stuff is she's mexican right yeah yeah and it was like remember that like i was a chino
1: because you have curly hair I have curly hair yeah. Yeah. That's
2: that was the weirdest part to me. Yeah, when we were there. So like, the weird racial like Na- labels, and labels. And stuff, yeah. May, I mean, best case scenario, she's simply reflecting the racism of her society.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, you know. It's, right. In that case, it's a little. It was a bit, a bit of a. I. It struck me as I was reading yeah, it that striking, she describes as having Chinese eyes. I was Quite like, striking. She thought Quite. it was beautiful. I think beautiful. But, Yes. Still, he also apparently had two eyeballs tattooed on the back of his head so that he could see his enemies everywhere. <laughs> she didn't get to see that. She didn't get to see those eyes, it's how they looked. Um, anyway, before you read, your, you have Guillermo Prieto next, yeah. right? Um, so let me tell you a little bit about this piece, other than that t- tangent that I just went on. This piece opens with a grim recollection of the Civil War years um, that we were just sort of reflecting on uh, in these countries. And so she's talking. This article in particular focuses on El Salvador, and, and she reflects on the the many dead um, and sort of the the brutality of that war. This um, is El Salvador. In El Salvador, right. and how you know she she actually was talking about a lot of the deaths that were of people in the Catholic Church, right? You had Archbishop Romero, right, Romero, right. That there's there's some movies about. Um, also, four nuns, I think Jesuit nuns from the U.S. were slaughtered uh, during uh-huh. the war. Um and she notes that El Salvador of today is actually riddled by worse violence than at any point since the early years of the war Christ. um which is linked inseparably to the United States by an immigrant stream that started during the conflict that conflict haunted always by the memory of one of the leaders who of that civil war or of El Salvador I should say who went on to found the party that ruled the country uh until the election in two thousand nine um and so it's a sort of interesting moment of, you know, again, these sort of statistics that that rival the, you know, even like the, it's right. more violent than some of the later years of that war. Right.
2: Um, That's wild. As just some
1: context.
2: That's wild. Wild, more dangerous than during the Civil War. Correct. Right. Dark. All right. So here's from page four of the Guillermo Prieto reading. Watching a girl play in a community center... I felt almost sick with fear for her, having heard over and over that Mareros gang members routinely force young girls into their terito- in their territory into sexual service, a duty that often begins with collective rape. And you're hitting me with like some tough cards tonight. Uh, or on Visita Intima Day, which throughout Latin America is nominally the day when wives are allowed privacy with their jailed husbands or established partners. Older girls may be sent as wives, that's in quotes, to the prisons where gang members are serv- serving sentences. Parents, desperate to keep their daughters away from any sort of contact with the Maras, send them to the countryside to be raised by relatives, obviously, but not everyone has rural cousins or parents in the barrio of Montreal, and its dangers were this girl's unavoidable circumstance.
1: Yes. I mean, again, as we're sort of thinking about the context of the migrant caravans and I don't know if you all remember back a few years before that was this crisis of unaccompanied minor children. Right. And I mean, one of the things that is driving this push is, in fact, this fact that um, both girls and boys and as the Paris uh, quote showed increasingly at younger ages, are right. being pushed into some kind of relationship with the gang, right? Um, the boys. I, mean, it I looks, don't
2: imagine you just leave.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Right? You don't just be like, "Oh, this was fun."
1: Well, Peace I mean, out. a the for the I boys. I mean, for the
2: girls, I, I talk about the boys, obviously, rape. right? Like when we're talking about rape, it's not like, "Oh, no." There's obviously no choice.
1: Yeah, no. With the boys, there's. Mm, probably to some degree more choice. And I think Guillermo Prieto shows some of that, though I don't think it's even always the case that there's choice there. I think she portrays it as that in a way that suggests that it's always a choice. And I think that there are far more examples where boys are also pressured into that life Mm -hmm. uh, in some of these neighborhoods. Um, Though I Mm -hmm. think that there are also reasons that, that she talks about why, you know, it still is a choice even when it's brutal.
2: Sure, sure, sure. Let's see if we get there. Got a couple left here. Uh, This is from page seven. As U.S. immigration policy has focused on deporting the greatest possible number of undocumented migrants, no matter what their situation, a great many Salvadoran deportees, some of whom grew up in the United States and hardly speak Spanish, have found themselves back in their country of birth. A number of these unwilling returnees are mareros, who either join the local branch of their organization or try to flee back home, that is, to the United States, joining a migrant trail across Mexico used by hundreds of thousands of would-be immigrants every year. Along the way, the Mareros are often recruited by Mexican drug traffickers who have developed highly lucrative sidelines in white slavery, child prostitution, and migrant extortion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I mean, there's a lot to take in here. There's a lot to take in
1: here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that one of the things that, I don't know, I thought maybe I had a a card on somewhere, but maybe I didn't, um, was this issue that there is clearly these links between U.S. deportation policies and some of the formation of these gangs, right? So that you had from the Civil War... Um, the civil wars that we were funding, right? So the U.S. has a hand in in all kinds of parts of this, right? So we were propping up the Salvadoran regime against okay. the, the left-wing parties. If we're focusing just on this one, we also were supporting the Guatemalan regime as well as the uh, fight against the Nicaraguan uh, left. This is in the Cold War context, right? We talked about this some already in class. Um, so we were supporting those wars uh, on the parts of the regime and mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. that created displaced people during the war some of which came as refugees right to the united states right um those people in the united states faced issues and then formed these gangs and then when they were deported those gangs became exported back to um the northern triangle right. countries so you actually right. had both the um Ocho and the mara salvatrucha started in la Right there. So they are Los right. Angeles gangs that then went back um, to Central America. And there's there's reasons why, I mean, we can't just blame that transnational sort of connection, but that that is certainly, um, you know, a big part of the story of how these, you know, that, that couldn't have happened in a vacuum in a strong state, right? You know, it would have looked different, but that we nonetheless see that kind of transnational connection in yet another way and then as they link up with the dto is becoming this far more nasty right if we're thinking about that discussion about like oh what if we legalize drugs right that this people smuggling is mm-hmm. you know now a part of these some of these criminal organizations like i mean portfolio i don't know what sure, you did, sure, right? call sure, it sure
2: income to revenue source
1: <laughs> yeah
2: yeah but i guess i i guess i want to say I mean, I'm just going to say this just for because I find it so shocking, so, so, sort of morally shocking, is like the way that you just described it, I feel like the it was, well, you know, there were these people, they fled civil war, they came to the United States, there were some issues, so they formed some gangs. And it's like, well, I mean, come on, like millions of people face issues in the united states you don't like it's not like oh suddenly because you're exposed to racism you form a gang
1: well so the way that the the community i mean i don't i don't know the whole story here but the way that the community in los angeles was was that they were in neighborhoods that were already heavy with gangs OK. Right. So that the the Salvadoran gangs formed in response and as a protection right, right. against Mexican Within and African-American other... gangs. Right. So it it does. It did sort of fit the ecology. I mean, again, we could think about the way in which policing in the United States also sort of influenced that as we think about policing in Central America and Got the you. way it influences okay. gang formation. I mean, okay. it's the same kind okay. of thing is happening okay. in L.A. Okay.
2: Well, this is specifying some of the issues right they at faced. The time. Right this correct. This is specifying some of the issues <laughs> so, yeah. they faced, which is helpful.
1: Yeah. So, So yeah. I mean, like, I, I think it had their, yeah. I mean, it's, like, sort of the same.
2: It's all connected, man.
1: Yeah. So, it's, like, I mean, I think we see. And, I mean, the other, yeah, go ahead. I, I think I have some other things that I don't know where no, I was going to my mind I was just being, <laughs> mind my
2: mind being blown here by that connection, right? Yeah. Pssh- wild right i mean that's crazy
1: yeah and i mean i think that we can see really some of the same processes right that are happening because
2: i feel like so i mean your argument right is like if the united states had social policy that alleviated poverty in our urban areas Mm -hmm. and put a check on racist policing practices Mm -hmm. then MS-13 might have found less fertile soil in which to form?
1: Well, okay, so so I could say we could put the onus on the United States and the formation of those gangs here, and then we right. could say the same thing about the Central American countries that right. those people right. were deported back to, right? That, like, if those countries right. had better social policy, had stronger states, had stronger democratic institutions, had stronger rule of law, that then you wouldn't have seen those gangs taking off with, right, because I mean, we, we deported a lot of people. Not all of them were gang members, of course, right? Of I course, mean, you of know, that's so plenty. Were just like ordinary people that end up being shipped. Back. I mean, now, also may have then ex- faced extreme social dislocation if they didn't really speak Spanish and right. weren't really truly Salvadoran right. in any right. meaningful, um, right. Since they were Salvadoran American, right? They weren't really Salvadoran.
2: Now, or... I have another question for you about the just general drift of the course. Is like, as I hear that as i hear you talking about that i want i i wanted to stop you earlier in your explanation and ask whether you know is there some sense in which in a region with such low state capacity that really more of the onus for solving the problems should fall on those regional partners with higher state capacity
1: i mean and one, more
2: resources like i mean
1: one would I, mean, I guess I should say that's an
2: ethical. It's question. an ethical
1: question. I would say that historically we have not been a great partner. Right. Um. And in fact, a lot of our policies have created like the wrong kind of capacity, where we were creating right. capacity. We really fueled the development we're of very authoritarian creating anti-communist
2: capacity rather than correct. state capacity.
1: Correct. And so we had these these
2: or transport capacity rather than state capacity.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's fucked.
1: Yeah. And I mean, in some cases, right, especially if we're thinking Central America, I mean, we had there was a sort of business interest in keeping those states sort of weak and unable to tax. When you think about the fruit companies and, Uh right, I Uh mean, there was plenty of reasons why having strong states wouldn't necessarily be in the, like, U.S.-based corporations' interest. And, I mean, in the course we've seen a lot that the U.S. political interests tend to supersede the economic ones, but there there was a lot where they worked in tandem and, you know, the economic interests weren't necessarily interested in that either. So you have these multiple kind of pressures from the United States that are about, you know, again, preventing communism, which meant that we didn't really support this kind of positive state building and then... right. In addition, with some of the multinationals that were also uninterested in state—I mean, they didn't have a—they yeah. yeah, yeah. didn't have an interest in state building particularly.
2: Yeah, that's just so complex because it's like, I obviously you see that as a short-term interest of certain economic elites in the larger partners, not just the United States, right? right. But I would assume that all of the larger regional partners, right? Like, I mean, the United States being clearly the largest and highest capacity well maybe not the highest the richest certainly the richest right okay but it's like one would think like one would think that someone but of course this person is never powerful enough right like to to, to, to who has the long term vision right to say yeah 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 like to let's let's think in like historical time here Rather than thinking in shareholder time.
1: Well, this is, I think, where I like w- brings us back to our opening quote of of Trump's on the like, this played well electorally.
2: Yeah. Right? For a fucking midterm, man.
1: Well, and for his selection to president.
2: Sure. Well, the I 2018, mean, though, right? The migrant caravan. I know, caravan, but like, right.
1: this was like being used twice in electoral circumstances, which, I mean... Like I said, I think we see over and again, I mean, occasionally it benefits Latin America, the, like, U.S. electoral thing, but it's, like, the waves are really I'm have just... much less to do with that, again, consistent, like, overarching policy goals. Than... It's, mean... like, the moment when you wish that the, what do we call it, the, what do I call it, the deep state, that the deep state was deeper, right? <laughs> right, I mean, yeah. where it's, like, we could use a little... You know.
2: It's just so it's it's it's, it's too, much. It's it's too much. All right, here's two quotes from page eight. Uh I, I, I assume I should read these both together. You could start with one. Start with and one and we'll pause. One. Okay. Uh, although the maras are on the retail end of the illegal drug trade in El Salvador. Excuse me. Uh, he does not attribute, I assume, a mara. Oh, sorry. A
1: no, this was like a. I think he was a policeman. A like policemen. a not corrupt policeman. A supposedly not corrupt supposedly
2: policeman. supposedly uncorrupt policeman does not attribute their growth to the drug trafficking bonanza in Central America. Now that the region has become the principal corridor for moving South American drugs to North America. So although the Maras are on. <coughs> excuse me well the maras are on the retail end of the illegal drug trade in El Salvador the police some parts of the police do not attribute their growth to the drug trafficking bonanza in central america now that the region has become the principal corridor for moving so so this guy says it's not it's not because of drugs like this these these maras would be independently powerful outside of drugs so i think stuff. he's
1: more saying that okay. yes i think yes and no so he wants to say, and I kind of like this because it's one of the things that I feel like I've regularly and maybe in this class we over because of the class it is, we focus on the international dimension, but where I keep sort of reminding the students that I mean in a certain regard there are always domestic interests that are operating always. as well. And in the same way that we can look at you know, we've looked a lot at the US, right? This thing this right. like when we look at Trump and see him taking advantage of this like opportunity to use this rhetoric against the US, right? I mean domestically there are people that are taking advantage of these opportunities right right. and so i think one of the things that this policeman is saying is that like the the benefits of gang membership in else in contemporary el salvador given the socioeconomic context okay are greater than just those that could be fully explained by the narco move into central america
2: i see i see
1: so he's going to complicate it a little. Right? Okay. I mean he clearly is like aware that the sort of networks of um, right. drug trafficking have are it, you know this a is Houston. all like he I a think Houston. he was also talking about the sort of white slavery and the right he's talking about these things that are clearly this transnational elements that he's well aware of but that he sees also this sort of important socioeconomic local context which he thinks is also behind the the vi- mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. The, it's not just, like, oh, because of drugs that we have this violence. Right. It's kind of, I think, what he's saying. Right, right, saying.
2: right. The gangs distribute drugs, this is continuing on page 8, in the barrios, while casting themselves as its defenders, Kato said. But in reality, they don't defend the barrio. They terrorize it. The barrio is the territory where they extort, distribute drugs, kill, and make money. But they don't live with a lot of luxury. They're not narcos. Their origins are in the community, and what they fear more than death itself is losing their authority there. Because the moment they do that, they're dead. But it's an excellent way of living comfortably and giving money to a lot of people. Their strength lies in not breaking that chain of money distribution. That's how they can say to their underlings, fight for me. Right, so these these gangs are not like, you're not getting rich. Right. Being a marero. (laughs) This
1: isn't Pablo Escobar. Right. Or El Chapo, right?
2: Right, this ain't even The Wire.
1: And some of The Wire guys, right? This is more like your street corner kid or whatever.
2: Right, right. These are like gangs in Syracuse, New York, for yeah. example, right? Yeah. Like, you're not talking about... You. I mean, that's all I can think about, of course. Yeah. Is you're not talking about high-level, high-income, really rolling. Like, you're just talking about People who have no economic opportunities outside of illicit trade. Right. And so they're finding basically a middle-class fucking job.
1: Kind of, but also this guy...
2: I mean, middle-class level income.
1: That, well, I was going to say that he, this policeman actually talks a lot more... About the power than the money,
2: right? 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 That's what he says. It's their authority.
1: Yeah, that like that they have the ability to like tell some. But hang on, though.
2: Let me look at this quote here. Right? <laughs> Let's look at this quote. Let's go to the quote. De- they fear more than death itself is losing their authority. It's an because with well, the moment they do that, they're dead. It's an but it's an excellent excellent way of living comfortably and giving money to a lot of people. Their strength or authority, I don't know. Th- those are two different concepts entirely. Lives <laughs> in not man. breaking, not
1: a political theorist, right? Thing.
2: Not breaking that chain of money distribution. So I mean, their right. authority comes from the fact that they can give money to their like right, homies. right,
1: right. Yeah, I guess I didn't mean to like. Di-
2: and their family, not just their homies, right. but presumably also their family.
1: Yeah, and I the one of the, they like set it up a lot about you know you get these young men and their life chances are so low. I forget street oriented youth. <laughs> street the street oriented youth. I forget the but they're like by the time they're in their twenties, they're like dead or in jail. Right. Right. And the prisons are are nasty, super overcrowded. Sure. Like, you know, fifty men in a like six foot by six foot cell kind of terrifying, sure. you know thing. Not good. Not
2: a good situation.
1: Um and but yeah, but like in the meantime they sort of don't see Other alternatives. And I mean, this is also like linked if we think back to some of the economic development and the sort of economics in the region that is, again, like domestic, but also transnational. Right. So these are things that are not it's not like, oh, we can blame the United States. But there is also like that all of these things are both linked to transnational forces um, and, you know, uh, domestic problems. um. Right. Right. And that they have created this kind of stew of,
2: uh, right. And this, in the the moments. I mean, the challenge of the challenge of solving these problems is the challenge of figuring out a way to align incentives for such diverse like interests,
1: right. Well, and that there are always I mean, domestic Jesus. losers, right? So, I mean, of one course. of the things in the. Of course. Um, when we did a unit on neoliberal reform. Short term
2: losers, though, right? I mean.
1: Well, I mean, it, sectorally, maybe, yes, but individually, I mean, it, it's the. There right. Was you a, only live
2: so many years. Yeah. Right? I mean, like. like
1: these people aren't going to really retool. I mean, maybe if we had a different welfare state again, like some welfare states may be better at handling the like
2: so. Let me dislo- ask
1: economic dislocations. But I mean, the thing about this open trade that gets said in some of these movies is like the the losers are always very like clear and it's very palpable, whereas the winning and the benefits are very dif- diffuse, and so it's like you it's harder to see those. Um,
2: so let me ask a question. What, and this is, may take us too far afield and you may say like
1: <laughs> we're at the end we gotta stop we, you may say we're done <laughs> right, let's hear but it. like
2: what happens what happens if you just like if the world says you know what
1: no borders
2: no borders right like what happens what happens in the region
1: i mean i have no idea it I mean, Central America, if we're just – if I'm just going to not –
2: clear out? I mean, does it just clear out?
1: If if there was no – I don't know. I don't know what would happen. I mean, I guess – wait, I'll say two things. All right. One is that Central America tried for a period to have much more of a common, right, that there was like a union of Central American states. They broke apart. That was very early that they started out as one kind of country-ish – and then uh-huh. broke apart. They made other attempts at forming a union that have never been successful. So, I mean, insofar as this is about trying to create larger units, it uh-huh. doesn't have a great history, just period. Okay. Right, it, it, if we're just looking at Central America. Um, point number two is that if we use the United States as a model, I mean, it's not like everybody has left Alabama Right.
2: right. No, they haven't. No. I mean. No. You no, know, you no. You
1: still see population, yes. even no, if it's sparser, stay. in poor states. For right? all, kinds, I mean, of like, For all like, kinds of reasons. For all kinds of reasons. Yeah. So in any case, I guess that would be my Open Borders two points. But in any case, I mean, it's certainly a fascinating thought experiment. You guys can think about it in your responses if you want. Um, start a YouTube. <laughs> you could start a YouTube show. You could start your own podcast. You start your own podcast. <laughs> open Borders podcast. Um, I'm sure it exists. Yeah, it probably does. There's I'm like sure
2: 500,000 podcasts.
1: Well, and YouTubes. I mean, there's got to be endless, endless endless Literally,
2: It's literally infinite.
1: Yeah. But this all brings us back, just so we can wrap up. I don't know how long we've been talking. I'm um, like such a time warp now that I, I don't even know. Uh, lost all sense of time. Um, but then I hope that these two articles that you read after the Trump caravan gave you a little bit of perspective on sort of what it means, what some of these people that are coming um, to the United States, make, attempting that journey to the United States are facing at home. And then also, you know, one of the things that I was going to say at some point and, and hadn't brought up yet was that the journey through Central America and Mexico is extraordinarily dangerous. Um And they're basically well aware of the fact that they're likely to be robbed, raped, assaulted, like, you know, people lose their lives regularly. And this is not even, you know, we think about this as like they're crossing the Mexican border as though they start out on the Mexican border. But for many of these people, the journey starts far, far, far from the U S border and they're having to make their way this entire distance. Um, But sort of thinking about some of those children and the children and the sort of fear of parents that of what will happen to their sons and daughters is like part of the driving factor here, apart from that sort of economic stagnation or Mm -hmm. unemployment that, Mm -hmm. that some of these communities are also facing simultaneously. So, so it's a little bit of sort of thinking through with a migration, but a little bit with a focus on some of the domestic conditions that have really sparked some of this uh, migration.
2: Cool cool. I
1: mean not cool, but I hope it was informative.
2: Informative. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh there is I just re- I just listened while I was doing the dishes tonight yeah. to a professional podcast that's American life. <laughs> uh-huh, yes. Uh that you, they're ha- going
1: to listen to a few of them. Well, there's a,
2: this one from this week has a woman, a young woman featured uh reading an essay that she wrote in a forthcoming collection. Uh we're not being paid to plug this book. <laughs>
1: But if someone but if someone would like
3: someone to no, 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 be fine.
2: <laughs> um, the the book is called Undocumented Americans her name the author's name is uh Carla I'm going to try I think I I think I remember this right Carla Cornejo uh via she's Ecuadorian
1: okay
2: uh from grew up in New York City And her essay was fucking powerful. Really? Interesting. I have to listen to it. Really powerful because she's like, you know what? Like, my parents are just, like, regular people. Like, there's no, like, heroic story of striving here. Like, they're just, like, Ecuadorans that moved to New York City and, like, you know. Like, they had bad jobs. Right. And, like, uh, I went to Harvard. But, like, I'm not going to tell you some story about, like, how much, like, Whatever. I mean, just listen to it. This it's really good. This is that really, really good. Great. Really, 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 w- real good. Definitely professional. <laughs> Definitely very professional in all kinds of ways. Um, all right. So yeah, well, check it out. Check, check it out. Because well, I podcast. don't know. I mean, uh, I feel like probably at some point you want to just disappear in your headphones.
1: Yeah, yeah it's, it's you, you do. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> <Just to make laughs> did, I did I say that? Did I say that in the second person?
2: <laughs> I didn't say that in the first person.
1: Um, alright guys I I may look and see whether there's anything I can cut out of the readings for Friday but I will let you know that over the blackboard email communication I hope everyone's staying safe and sane and I will talk at you again soon bye everyone
3: well I feel so good I've got the boogie in my bones Well, I feel so good, I've got the boogie in my bones Can't you see it, babe? It keeps me jumping all the time Well, I feel so good, I've got the boogie in my bones Well, I feel so good, I've got the boogie in my bones Let's do the boogie woogie shuffle